this morning. Uh, if you've been here before, you know that we do a Q&A every week uh, that is part of kind of like bridging the sermon into communion. So if you have any questions about the sermon or the passage or the topic, uh, there will be a number on the screen in the bottom right-hand corner throughout the sermon that you can text that to. And please, please do. Like there is no such thing as a a bad question. We even have people who just send in statements or thoughts. I'm like, great. You don't, it actually doesn't even have to be a question, I guess. Um, it could be like, like seriously, if you're like, I don't, does anybody ask this question? I'm probably the only one. The reason why we do this is because you're not. We all have these questions. And so I, please, I encourage you to take advantage of that um, where, wherever you are coming from spiritually. And so this morning, uh, we are actually, we are wrapping up our sermon series on the epistle of James. We've been calling this, this series Strange Community because uh, it is a description of the, the behavior and the, the familial traits that is God's people, the church. And that is strange both to the world outside and also strange to us because we live in the world in general. And, and, and some of this has been like really big, right? I mean, James is, is, is a huge, like he's, very, he's a very blunt an honest writer, right? And the, 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 our last sermon in this series is going to be a little bit, I don't know, it might feel a little bit anticlimactic because he doesn't close the letter in, exa- in the way that most of the epistles in the New Testament close. He doesn't kind of end with salutations. He ends with like starting a new thing even, like a, a new imperative and describing something. And, and that comes across as a little bit weird, but it's important to know, and I'm going to read the passage in a minute, but that this is the culmination of everything that we've been talking about, right? When, when James says, don't slander your brother, don't sit in the seat of judgment lest you be judged as well because we live by the law of liberty in Christ, not the law of judgment. When he says to care for orphans and widows, to tame our tongue, to not pursue friendship with the world, to not be worldly or, or to show partiality to the wealthy or those who benefit us, to have wisdom that is from above and not below. All of these things, he all boils down to one surprisingly simple response. He says, pray. Pray, and then pray some more. So let's read chapter 5, verses 13 through 20 here. James says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins." So ends James. Let's pray. Jesus, this is your word. It is profitable. It is good. And it is a comfort 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to glean what it is that you have for us, both generally and specifically, both individually this morning and as a church and as a community. I pray that you would help us to see your love and truth in this, and I pray that you would help, help me to communicate all that you would have and nothing that you would not. Lord, we thank you that we can pray this to you even as we talk about prayer, knowing that you are already beautifully answering it before I started praying it. You are good, and it is in your good name we pray. Amen. So I was, I was thinking about, I was trying to figure out how to talk about strange family, because I know I just set everything up to make you think that this is all about prayer, and it is, but it's especially and particularly about God's strange family and what that means. I don't know if you've ever, uh, this is less of a thing in Colorado than it is where I'm from in St. Louis, um, but like every once in a while you go to a park and you know that somebody has rented out the pavilion and there's a bunch of people there and they're all wearing the same t-shirt, okay, right? And, and you know that if that's happening, right, it's either like a, a youth sports team or it's a family reunion, right? And if it's a family reunion, often, you know, there's going to be like the last name on the shirt, but it's, there's also going to be maybe like a tagline or a phrase or some kind of inside joke that only somebody who's actually wearing one of those shirts would understand, right? What I, what I think is interesting about this is because it, that, that represents a lot more than, than just like a way to identify and have some solidarity, right? It is actually an expression and a symbol or a a fruit of how a family relates to each other, both as an expression of identity and a marker of that family's identity. Right? My family, like for example, um, we don't really we don't really have T-shirts um, or anything like that. And my family, especially on my dad's side, is a little strange because his parents divorced and remarried, and so. We actually have two families squeezed into one family, and, and one side, which is the one I'm actually related to, is they're very, very serious people, if you know what I mean, right? And then the other family uh, that, that is technically my step-family, my step-aunts and uncles, like, they're hilarious and practical jokers, and I actually like them more, like a lot more. And actually, as I'm standing here describing this and processing and realizing why for me serious is fun. And that explains a whole lot, right? Because our family is formative also. There is a weird contradiction in, in the midst of this, right? James is saying that this strange family that is the church is identified and relates to one another primarily and, and especially in and as we pray for one another, right? Prayer is our same colored t-shirt. You might even say the Lord's Prayer is printed on it instead of the, you know, inside joke or what have you, right? Now, I'm not saying that what makes us Christian is prayer, because that's Jesus. Jesus is the one that does the saving, right? Prayer is our response to that. And so, prayer is not like the, our last name. Like for me, Edwards, like it's not Brad Prayer, it's Brad Christ. Well, if Christ was Jesus' last name. It's actually his title. We sometimes act like it's his last name. It's actually his title. That's who he is. He's the Messiah. That's what Christ, names, Christ means. But if, if it were our last name, that's, that's how it would function, okay? Prayer is not our last name. It is how 
we function and act uniquely as a family among all of the other families in the world. And so I want you to have that as a lens, this strange family, as a lens as we go through and we talk about prayer, because these are not two different things. This is actually one being part of and what it means to be part of the other. So I'm going to talk about the nature of prayer this morning, the people of prayer, and the power of prayer. I'm going to start with the nature of prayer. And there's a lot more diversity in terms of what James is talking about when he says to pray than we might otherwise think, right? He lists in, this, in these, you know, five verses, he says, from 13 through 18, he mentions prayer seven times. If you were here last week and you heard uh, the, my sermon on strange patience, this word patience in that previous section is mentioned seven times. James is signaling to the reader that prayer and patience are two sides of the same coin. That prayer, if anything, is the habitual expression, the demonstration, and the source of empowerment for patient endurance. It is how we have a strange patience. They are two equivalent sides of the same coin. That's what prayer is. Right? It's, a, it's a sustaining family trait for how we survive in a world that is not hospitable so how do we pray then? Well, this passage lists several different ways and different starting points. It's really fascinating. He says, you know, one of the longest parts is, is you, we're to call for the elders of the church. Right? We, we also receive it from others, both from the elders, there's an active receiving there, as well as we receive it from one another when we receive confession from one another as well. It says that we pray ordinarily and extraordinarily, both in a day-to-day -day sense, whatever the circumstances, as well as he uses um, Elijah kind of as, a, as an illustration. So there's an extraordinary, fervent aspect to prayer. But as diverse as these different dynamics are, there is something that unifies all of it. And, and this is more implicit than explicit than in James, but it's something that we don't really, I don't think we really fully appreciate like James and his cultural context does, which is common to all of this, is this beautiful, childlike belief, not in the strength of our prayers, but in the object of our prayers, and who our prayers are to, which is Jesus, who is our great high priest. There are two qualities that, that come from this, that are a part of this, that, that are all wrapped up in it. And I would even say there, there are two freedoms even that we have that I, we don't really fully appreciate but are implied in this passage. And, and the first is this, it's it's a radical honesty. God knows everything that you could possibly pray for anyway. If you're like me, that might feel like it disincentivizes prayer because, like, why say it to God if he already knows it? Like, you're just being redundant. You're telling him something he already knows. Like, why do we do that? That's, that's not actually the point, though. It's not supposed to disincentivize our praying, but to incentivize our praying honestly. 
And he's not going to be surprised by what we say or how we say it. You can actually bring all of it to him. Even the stuff that you might feel like embarrassed or maybe even ashamed or insecure about saying out loud to anybody. Whatever, for whatever reason, you can bring all of the mess, all of the guilt, all of the contradiction, all of this conflicted emotions, all of the shame, all of the anxiety, all of the uncertainty, all of the doubt, all of the fear, like literally all of it. It is a radical honesty that we get to have in ways that we, that are, it's just a challenge with anyone else in this world, right? The second quality here is, is an open-handed trust, an open-handed trust because God is good. He knows everything and he's good, right? Good way of kind of summarizing this is anytime you see like, Lord bless blank, bless so-and-so or this endeavor, whatever it is, anytime you see that in scripture, and, and, and I would love for us, anytime we say, Lord, would you bless this person or bless this situation or circumstance, anytime you say that, you hear it, you read it, know that, that the word bless is actually this it's, it's, it's intended to be a conscious shorthand that all wrapped up in that means what we're saying is, Lord, I don't, we don't know what to ask. We don't actually know what to ask for. We don't know what the best situation is. There's, a, there's an implied humility, not just that we can't fix it ourselves, but we also don't know how or how we could or would if we had the ability to do so because we don't see as God sees. It's this conscious shorthand for, Lord, we don't know what to ask, but you know what's needed. And that's what we ask for. It doesn't mean you can't ask for anything specifically. Please do. That's the radical honesty part. And God answers those prayers. And if you don't know, that is not, that is not something that disqualifies or inhibits or should challenge our prayers at all either. That's, that's amazing. Okay. So if that's the nature of prayer, let's talk about the people of prayer. And this is, I'm going to spend a lot of time on this point here in particular because I want to connect this to what I'm talking about, about how this is about God's strange family, okay? There are three distinct parties that are named in here, plus Elijah, but he's more illustrating the previous three, right? He says, number one, that there is individuals who are praying, Right? In the very first verse, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Okay, these are the two ends of the spectrum. The suffering is, is the, like, really heavy end of the spectrum. And the cheerful, the, a literal translation of, of that word would actually be uh, buoyant, like a buoy is bobbing in the ocean. You're, you're lifted up, right? So it's the opposite of weighty and, and burdened. It's light and buoyant right? What he's saying here is that there is one posture in prayer, but an infinite spectrum of occasions, circumstances, and flavors of dependence therein, whether that's gratitude and praise or petition and needing help. There is no circumstance that prayer is not a help for and good and beautiful for. So individuals, right? but also elders. And this is, this, this, this is the first time that elders are mentioned in the, in the epistle for James. And so 
to, to kind of describe that, elders are both the ordinary or familiar and the ordained, specially entrusted, shepherds with the responsibility to lead by example in praying for those who, for whatever reason, cannot. The, the passage where it's mentioned, it says, if anyone is among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Like, what this is saying is that the, the person who is calling for the elders is sick enough that they are at the end of themselves, right? If you are suffering some kind of a physical malady or illness, but, but he's using this kind of as an example to say that, like, okay, fine, pray always, but if you can't, that's why you have elders. Ask for them. Ask for them to pray over you. You are not on your own, and you do not belong only to yourself. You belong to shepherds who care for you and love you and are in, you have entrusted with your spiritual health. Trust them with your physical health too, right? The last party that, that James mentions is, is kind of is br brothers, right? Brethren, family. Verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you, right, he's, he's putting it back into the one anothering of the church. He's saying that there is, yes, we have elders, and there is a special qualification for elders, but there is not a special qualification for praying for each other, right? That there is zero special qualification, zero skill or special giftedness required because this is what family does, we pray for each other. And so my point in this is, is James is saying, by, by including these three parties, these three dimensions, right, he's not leaving anything out. He's, leaving, he's, he's including everyone he could possibly be writing to in between these three parties. He's saying, pray always, and if you can't, call for the elders. But don't wait until you can't and you come to the end of yourself be praying for one another as, member, as members of God's strange family. Right? Now, I want to, I want to, this is an important, this is, may feel like a rabbit trail from what I'm talking about, but it's, it's not as much as it seems, and it's, it's a really important one because it's in the text. And this is something James includes in the ending of his letter, so it's important, right? He links in verse 16, he says, Confess, he says, therefore, right, after this kind of excursus about being sick and what have you, he says, therefore, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. He's seeming to link sin and sickness together and saying that sin may be a cause of sickness, okay? I hesitate to talk about this and open this as a can of worms because, because the cause and effect relationship of that has often been used by people to either go all, way off into the direction of like a health and wealth gospel, which is not the gospel, it's a contradiction in terms, okay? Number one. Number two, um, it's also used to like beat people up or as an excuse not to act as a family to somebody. Be like, oh, well, they're sick because it's their fault. No, 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 no. There is zero freedom or permission to do that in Scripture, okay? But there is a weird, and we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater because there is a strange relationship between these two things here that sometimes is the case. It is not normative. It is not always. And in fact, we will never be able to know whether it is or not. That's not actually our job. Only God knows. However, when it does, when that is linked in Scripture, it is without exception 
has a purpose. And every time, Scripture implies that God's purpose in doing that is in order to either get our attention using our physical, um, let's, let's call it an increase in our finitude, um, our inability, our helplessness. Um, when God does that, it humbles us because we are no longer able to be self-sufficient. Because that is what gets in the way of our, of God, our relationship with God. That's sin. Sin is an attempt to, to exist apart from our Creator, right? And so it gets our attention by humbling us, and in so doing, it also forces us to depend on not just God, but also God through our spiritual family, through the church, all with the goal of tearing down that idol of self-sufficiency, right? Again, I want to just reinforce that God alone knows whether that is the case. So either way, whether that is the case or not, and because we can't know, sickness is still, and man, can we just say, like, as a church, we've been rocked with sickness over this cold and flu season. It's been miserable. Y'all have been in, experiencing a significant increase in your finitude, right? It's a really uh, fancy way of saying crying for your mama, right? I've been with you in that, Okay. Either way, sickness is an opportunity, all of it, to reflect on our finitude, our mortality, and our dependency, and to receive fresh grace by repenting of our self-sufficiency. That's what James is getting at, is in your weakness, you have an opportunity to depend on a greater power and strength than your own. And so if sickness, and if in your reflection, as you're lying on the couch and you know, delirious because of Dayquil, if, that, if you are reflecting and taking advantage of that opportunity to reflect on whether or not you have sinned in some way, then confess it to somebody. Confess it to God. Confess it to one another. And guess what? If you recover, great, icing on the cake. And if you don't, it's actually still really good because you get to experience forgiveness all over again that you might not have otherwise because you were sick. My point is this, like, God's point is, is that this is grace from start to finish, okay? And, and he's leaving no stone unturned, right? Let me, let me use this as an example of this. When it says to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord, um, this does not mean that there's any kind of magic oil or that by like doing the sign of a cross on somebody's forehead with, with some olive oil or even prayed over oil, olive oil, that's not a thing. Olive oil had two purposes in, in James's world, right? One, it was the best medicinal practice of the day. And so what James is saying is like, pursue the best obvious medical practices of the day and do it in the Lord's name by his power, like pray, right, as you do it. And also the, the, the oil had an additional uh, benefit of having, being a, a, a physical symbol of a very real spiritual reality of the, of the authority of Jesus' name to heal, and to work through both ordinary and extraordinary means of grace. Another way of saying this is, is it, it may not remove our affliction, but it can transform our experience of it. It may not remove our experience, but it can transform our experience of it. Okay, does that make sense? If it doesn't, you can definitely text in for the Q&A. Um, I want to I do, to hammer home what I'm trying to describe with this people of prayer I want to I kind of excavate something and maybe kind of deconstruct an assumption that many of us have 
um, in order to really appreciate the full power of this, right? Because how many of you, by a show of hands, have you heard the, the phrase, the priesthood of all believers? Heard that? Good. Okay. A few of you, at least. This is an idea. Actually, let me pause in explaining that and just read the passage that it is, it is sourced in. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, uh, Peter says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Pause there. I want to point out that all of those are, are, are groups of people, but in the singular, right? A chosen people, not peoples. A royal priesthood, singular priesthood. A holy nation, singular. A people, singular for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so this passage is, is taken to mean and to use... Uh, um, some things that it's not intended to, okay? Most often when people use this, this phrase, they mean that, that they kind of interpret it more as um, you, are a cho- you are chosen pe- persons, you are royal priests, holy citizens, right? It does not mean that. It does not mean that there is no need for shepherds or leaders in a church because we are all uh, on, you know, because we have equal access to Jesus, we do have equal access to Jesus, but a, an outflow of that or an implication of that is not that we don't need shepherds or leaders or that there isn't you know, prophets and evangelists, etc., as Paul lists in Ephesians 4. It does not mean especially, and this is the worst part about it, this is, how, this is the, I think, the most grievous misapplication. It does not mean that we are each our own priest as if we are on our own sufficient for ministering to ourselves or others. That is not anywhere even remotely intended by Peter. What it does mean is that every Christian has direct access, that no priest or sacrifice is necessary for Jesus' presence to be real and actually with and among us. But it means in a communal sense, and when we're talking about this in the context of God's strange family, and this is what James is implying here, is that every Christian is someone else's priest. Every Christian is someone else's priest, and we are all priests to one another, and in so doing, we are the holy, royal family of priests, a priesthood singular, together. You can't do that on your own. We need one another for that, right? We are the royal family of priests. And so the priesthood of of all believers is not just the right and permission and freedom we have to access Jesus. It is also, as James would agree, the responsibility to bring one another to Jesus in prayer. We are, as a culture, I've said this before, we we love to talk about rights. And we flee as fast as we can in the other direction as as soon as someone brings up responsibility. Okay? We have the right to the access of the throne of our great high priest. That incurs a beautiful, holy obligation to be his under-shepherds and priests to one another. That is a very real and weighty responsibility. It's the responsibility of family. There are two, like, I, w- I want to make this really practical because that's an easy thing to be like, I like, I love that. I agree with that. And not do business with 
the specifics, right? Here's two implications of that responsibility. If you are strong in prayer, okay, I'm really, really grateful that there are at least several of you who are at the table. Don't wait, initiate, okay? If you are strong in prayer, don't wait, initiate. And I mean that both explicitly and personally. Ask someone how you can be praying for them. Receive whatever they do. Like, whatever they confess to you, say, this is my need. Or maybe, they may even say, like, I'm actually really struggling with this habitual sin in my life. Pursue that gently and graciously with truth and love, but do not take, oh, I'm just really busy as an answer, (laughs) okay? If you're customer service, okay, cool. If you're a holy royal priesthood, that, no. Okay, why are you busy? Okay, press in. We're family. We can go there. If you, if you struggle with prayer, okay, insist, right? Family members pray for and help pray with one another. So what I mean by that is, um, actually, let's just... Can we just, let me get real with this, okay? The only thing, you know, you guys know how much I hate small talk. I'm bad at it, and I'm just like, cool, yeah, great. Like, how, 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 okay, how are things really going? That's why if you ask me how I'm going, and I, if I hesitate, it's because I'm like, I don't want to just say good as a reflex. If I'm, if I, I want to say I'm good if I am good. If I'm not, I want to say that too, right? And so, the only thing worse than small talk is small prayers. Because we don't have small needs, If you need prayer, ask for where and why and how much you need prayer. No drive-by pray for me's, right, because we're family. Now, as I say those two things, by the way, you are in one of those two categories, okay? Personally, I'm in the latter, okay? I I really actually struggle to pray, okay? And, And I... I really hesitated with whether or not to, 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 to say, even say that or, or go here because I think a lot of times, you know, we pastors can do this really stupid, dumb thing, uh, like a humble brag. It's just like, oh, it's hard for me too. I actually don't mean it that way. Like, it's sinful, okay? This isn't a good thing. I don't like it. But I apparently don't like it enough to, like, do about it, do anything about it too. Um, it's a really frustrating thing. I've got all kinds of uh, excuses, I mean reasons, right? Like, I, I didn't grow up in the church as a Christian. I don't, I, I've, I've, I've actually only had one person ever, like, sit down and attempt to, like, say, like, here's how you pray. Like, I'll pray with you and, like, come alongside me. And I was really early in my Christian walk, okay? Um, so I've got that excuse, I mean reason, right? I'm ADD, like, sitting still is, like, I don't even understand what those words mean, never mind how to do it. Okay, I've got all kinds of reasons. And you know, I'm really grateful. Um, uh, our team at this church is amazing, like the staff, as staff members, right? Uh, I mentioned last week uh, that we, as a staff, took time praying for like specific people and the church as a whole. And I didn't have anything to do with that. Okay, that was initiated by I think literally everybody else on staff, okay? And I'm really grateful for it, and I experienced grace. And 
and I'm saying this here now because I, I, like, I want you to hear that I was blessed. Remember that that's shorthand for, Lord, I don't know what to ask, but you know what's needed. And the Lord knew what I needed is to be relieved of the burden of having to be strong in prayer when I actually just struggle. And in a small, microcosmic kind of way, this church has already acted as someone who struggles in prayer as a royal priesthood to minister to me, okay? In every single example in Scripture of someone who struggles to pray, in every single historical example I can, you can think of, if you struggle to pray individually, you will be helped and the intended, not just accidental, the intended fuel and empowerment for that transformation to happen is actually corporate prayer. It's communal prayer. It's family. Here's where I'll, I'll jump into the Q&A here in just a minute. But I want to talk about the power of that prayer because that's what James, that's why it, it feels like a weird aside for him to end with verses 19 through 20, but it's actually highly related with everything we've been talking about. Let me reread verses 19 and 20, 20 for us. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You guys heard that phrase, family that prays together stays together. I hate that phrase, okay? I really hate that pray, phrase, probably at least because I struggle to pray, and that's sinful like I just got done talking about, but also it implies that like if like there, there's an implied legalism there of like if you don't pray, you're not going to stay together. Like that's on you and not God, and that's... That's not okay. However, here's what I will say. God uses a family that prays together to reconcile and reunite. And that is why, that, that's why James goes here after talking about prayer for five verses straight. Right? If, if, if every Christian is someone else's priest and we are all priests to one another, then in so doing, we will together be as God's strange family, God's strange community, function as Jesus' priest, singular, together, ministering to neighbors and among the nations. It, that happens as a community. When he says anyone, if anyone brings back, uh, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, do you see how he is equating the church with God's strange family? When the truth is born out in God's strange family such that they are praying to and for one another normatively under the great high priesthood of Jesus, then what happens is the truth is embodied in the world. And that truth is very hard to resist. It, will, it is so powerful that it brings back people who knew it and then left it. It is by and through God's strange royal family of priests and priesthood that is praying for one another that wandering brothers end up wanting to return home to. Because what can, what can match that? And I mean that, by the way, both in the sense of, of like 
of God answers those prayers when we pray for one another, and, and including those who, who wander from the truth. Like, yes, both in the sense of the power of answered prayer, but also in the formative power of prayerful care. Because as we pray for one another, we actually, we're not just practicing being family, we're growing in it. And in growing in it, that transforms and shapes our hearts and our affections for one another into more and more familial strength and depth and breadth. Prayer shapes and grows our affections, yes, for one another, also for God, for our neighbor. It's how, when I say, I've, I've talked several times in the series about how our vision statement as a church is not to be the embodied hospitality of Jesus, right? But to become the embodied hospitality of Jesus because we are not on our own sufficient for that. But together in Christ, he promises he will transform us and help us to become that. And that's an expression of our dependence on him for it. And that's not easy, but it is simple. And all of this boils down to what I said toward the very beginning. This is only possible because this royal priesthood, this royal family priesthood, is under the great high priest. So let me read Hebrews 4, and I'm going to very quickly move to the Q&A after this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast, fast to our confession, both in terms of where our faith is, but also in terms of our need for it in, in the sins that we confess to one another. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize our weaknesses, including struggling in prayer, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That's another way to describe prayer. Together, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. The efficacy of our prayer, again, both in being answered and in it forming our care, in it forming our care, is our once and for all sacrifice in Jesus Christ. He is still mediating for us and on our behalf, and so that's... That's what I'd like us to do. Um, I've got kind of three points, three implications that I, I've been really convicted by this sermon before I even started preaching it, obviously. Um, <laughs> I want us to start small. And so, like, after the service, if you would like prayer, if that's been something that because I struggle in it, I, that our, I don't want... I'm not trying to take more responsibility than I should, but if we as a church struggle uh, in prayer, then it at least and especially starts with me, okay? And so to do a little bit to try and change that, I'm going to be just kind of near this communion table after the service. If you want to pray, I'll be there. I suck at it too. Let's do it together, okay? Um, thank God it's Jesus that is, makes that effica efficacious and not me. Um, secondly, uh, it was actually a few weeks ago that one of you came up to me and asked if it would, if we would ever start a prayer team or to have people who are praying either like during communion or after the service or anything along those lines. And I have no idea what that form is going to look like, but that's been in my, the back of my head since then. So thank you. You know who you are. And so if you want to participate in that in some way, maybe you're strong in prayer or maybe you're like, you know what, I struggle and actually I just want to be surrounded by people who don't. It might be the entire group is filled with people that way too, and so we're just going to do it together. And I have no idea what that means yet, but if you are interested in that and you want to explore this more, just email me, okay? Brad at tablechurch.com. 
shoot me an email anytime. I have no idea, again, what that's going to look like or when, when that'll come to fruition. But if I have your name, that gives me one less excuse, okay? And then number three, I, I would encourage you, for those of you who are in a community group, um, no drive-by prayers, right? I know as a community group, everybody takes time toward the beginning to say, like, here's what's going on in my world. Like, yeah, can we pray for each other? Drop the drive-by prayers. I know it's hard. I know it's scary. But I also know your leaders are absolutely happy to go first in that. And they're happy to demonstrate that vulnerability so that you know you can be too. And so maybe try that the next time you go to your community group. I'm going to mine this afternoon. So if you're in my community group and you're here, you already know where I need prayers to pray more. Um, all right. Let me stop there and see what questions we have. Wow, we have several. Why do you got to ask several questions on the thing that I said I'm really bad at? Cool. <sighs> Just another opportunity for me depending on Jesus. Okay. I love what you said about the Lord's Prayer, using it as a launching point. I feel like the Lord's Prayer is laid out simply. Worship, request for sustenance, repentance, prayer for delivery, and worship again. What does worship look like in the day-to-day? -day? Man, that is... God, okay, I'm really passionate about this answer, and for that reason, I have to pump because I don't know how to say that in a short answer, but it looks like, actually, let me just read James. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. He's equating prayer and worship as two different expressions of the same thing. And so I would say, well, if you pray today, you're already worshiping. You're ask, God hears you're asking him for help as worship. Worship is not a, a, something that is different from that. It's at least that, right? Okay, let me ask, see another one. How does the relationship between sickness and sin relate to Jesus' comment in John 9 where he states, neither he nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I've always taken John 9 as a statement that sin is not causally connected to sickness and disability? Is the true relationship more complex? Are you saying that sometimes sin might cause sickness to redirect us, but sometimes, like John 9, the sickness is present for another purpose? This is, this is an easy answer, and the answer is I don't know, okay? It is definitely at least more complex with, than does sin cause sickness or not. It's almost any time you have a binary rephrase that. Most of the time you have a binary like that, Scripture won't back it up, okay? What I will say is that there is something mysterious in the way that, sin, that Scripture talks about the relationship between sin and sickness is it is mysterious enough that we should never try to state it more certainly than Scripture does. And when I say that Scripture says it's a mystery, that means we shouldn't state it with any certainty at all. God knows and God alone knows the point in, in saying that there may, there can sometimes be a relationship with there is to say that Jesus has, that God has a redemptive purpose in everything. And we may not know or ever be able to see what it is, hindsight or otherwise. That doesn't mean it's not there. At the bare minimum, all sickness is a result of the fall, which was originally caused by sin. So there is a relationship in the cosmic sense, absolutely for sure, Okay. To get more specific than that, though, you start treading on ground only God can see, okay? One more question. 
Our culture loves to scathingly denounce the offerings of thoughts and prayers in times of trouble. How do we effectively and lovingly communicate that we do believe in the power of prayer to an unbelieving world? That's a really good, thank you for asking this. The reason why the world denounces the offer, scathingly denounces the offering of thoughts and prayers in times of trouble is because they are right often rightly picking up on our drive-by prayer requests or our drive-by prayer offerings, right? I think if we said and we meant that, we would actually be unavailable for comment or lots of things because we're too busy praying. I think that if we actually meant that, then we would say, I'm offering thoughts and prayers, and here's how you can specifically join me at this date and time and location. And we're literally going to, like, not just thoughts, but actually pray. Because thoughts can be incidental. Prayer is always intentional. And I think if we practice, like, this is why Israel, as a nation of priests, when it says that, oh gosh, this is so good. Okay, I promise I'm ending here after this. To say that we are a chosen people, this is getting back to language of God's original covenantal choice in, in Genesis 12 when he says, tells Abraham that your family, family will be my chosen people and a, a, the, your gener the generations later will be my chosen people. They will be a royal priesthood. They will be mediating my presence on earth. The church, Jesus is, let me put it this way, Jesus is, is our capital M mediator in terms of mediating our salvation. The church mediates the experience of redemption in the world collectively. The church functions as a priest does. And if the church is not functioning as priests among and to each other, how can we hope to do so to the world and to our neighbors? That's why this is so important. And that's the connection to a strange family. Because it matters not just for us, it also matters for the sake of the world and for our neighbors. All right. This is why, man, if you ever want to get me to go long, just ask me about how communion relates to the Old, Ta Old Testament sacrificial system. Um, because it does in so many ways. No, I'm not going to do it now. I'm not going to talk about it now. But the point is that when Jesus is doing communion on Good Friday, on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, what he is doing is he is communicating that his sacrifice is about to happen on the cross is the sacrificial lamb, the once and for all sacrifice. And so when he takes the bread with his disciples and he breaks it, he is, he is, he is blurring the lines between the, the, uh, the sacrificial lamb offering of the Day of Atonement and what's called the peace offering in the Old Testament because he's breaking the bread and he's, he's linking the two. He's saying, because of that atonement, we have peace. And likewise, when he takes the wine, he pours out, he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. That is a priestly function. In the same way that the blood of the lamb was sprinkled over the altar in the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, in the, in the Old Testament Jerusalem temple, he is saying that when you drink this wine and eat this bread, you proclaim that that has already happened once and for all and need never happen again. 
And so in and as we are functioning as priests to one another, as God's strange family, what we are doing is mediating an experience of his love and grace. And this table is our fuel where we are brought together as a family and nourished toward that end. Thank God. You can struggle in prayer, you can be strong in prayer, and we still desperately need this. If you know that, even a little bit. This table is for you.